Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. With the Windsor framework having been agreed this week, and Nicola Sturgeon's recent resignation, we look at what all this means for the UK and its relationship with the EU. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Specialist, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. So another important week in UK politics comes to an end. We've managed to get Olivia, one of our in-house UK political experts, to come in and give us the skinny. As usual, we also have Will to help us with the economy and market side of things and to give us a bit of the wider world that really matters for our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. So, Olivia, let's start with you. Can we say that Prime Minister Sunak has finally got Brexit done with this Windsor framework? Blunt, I know, but I thought good place to start. Sure, and apologies, it's not not so hot off the press now. But look, and as listeners will know, and I won't recap fully, you know, and you'll probably undoubtedly begrudge, you know, Brexit has dominated the best part of UK politics for almost a decade now. And I think this week, you know, we have seen a decisive breakthrough with the conclusion of the Northern Ireland protocol negotiations that might have actually put Brexit to bed. We'll all hope. Uh, not me, they will put me out of a job with commentating. So. <laughs> we're still, we're still going to have you on. Yeah, well, I want it to rumble we'll on. Find some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, look, if you'll recall, you know, the protocol was causing quite serious practical and political difficulties because it was creating, in effect, a sort of hard border in the Irish Sea around the movement of goods. And, you know, the Windsor framework, as it's being called, will reduce that administrative burden and the frequency of checks required for goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, so long as they remain in Northern Ireland. Now, I won't go into detail of all of the measures. You know, it covered parcels, pet transport, plants, seeds, uh, you name it. I think it was pretty comprehensive. But essentially, Sunak has achieved a much more light touch regime. The agreement also, of course, introduces this safeguard or emergency mechanism, the Stormont Break, which will allow the Northern Ireland Assembly to object to sort of EU single market rules applying in Northern Ireland. And look, we could go on uh, on all the detail forever, but I think it's fair to say that the deal, you know, it represents a pretty significant thawing of EU-UK uh, relationships. You know, the EU's moved a lot further than I think most believe they would. So getting the deal even this far is a pretty incredible accomplishment for Sunak. So do you think it will be successful? Sounds positive? Well, I'll only speak from the political perspective rather than operational. But, you know, so far, I think the deal has received pretty widespread political acceptance, if not acclaim. You know, no ministerial resignations. I think I checked my Twitter a few minutes ago and we're still safe to say that. You know, broad political support across the spectrum, even staunch Brexiteers. I think it was Steve Baker, Chris Heaton, Harris came out in support of it. And, you know, I would put it in sort of non-academic terms to say I think Sunak's kind of pulled off a blinder. Obviously, we've still got the DUP to come. They sort of said they would give a full view after they've analysed all of the details. If they decide not to oppose the deal, as I think it's looking likely, I think it becomes a pretty slam dunk for Sunak. And even with that parliamentary vote, uh, I think the vote will be non-binding. But even with that that vote, uh, the, the mood music so positive at the moment, even from his own backbenches and Labour support, it should be pretty smooth sailing. So, yeah, I think the thing I'd sort of conclude with saying on that is not only is Rishi sort of seemingly brought the issue of Brexit to a close, but he's also building pretty positive momentum as a prime minister who sort of gets stuff done. So I think there are wider implications there as well. Okay, interesting. Well, maybe turning to you, let's have a think about this from the perspective of the economy. There's some agreements that Brexit is proven to be a headwind, but 
the amount of that headwind or the challenge is always up for debate. Does this meaningfully help us? Yes, I will try to be a bit positive in keeping with Olivia's tone, Sarah. I was very impressed how Olivia tiptoed through all of that with not not getting into hot water with the business, which is always what she's here for and stopping me doing the same. It's probably, I think from an economics perspective, it's probably better off being seen as removing a potential downside threat rather than anything, you know, any material alleviation of the economic headwinds that have come with Brexit. That's not irrelevant, though. I mean, if you think of one of the perceived effects, which is essentially the kind of fog of uncertainty that Brexit created and the effects that that has had on investment in the economy, this serves to reduce that uncertainty to clear the fog a little bit, which could be important. There are a few other things here to consider here too. This may open up the path towards a bit more alignment between Europe and UK, a move away from the hardest form of Brexit, if you will, that speculation. I don't know that's the case, but that may not be to everyone's taste. Brexit was not just an economic project, far from it. However, one economic problem for the UK at the moment is that it is literally, we are literally fighting gravity with this current trading posture. This surrounds the still like amazingly robust theory that you trade most with your nearest geographical neighbour, almost no matter how hard you try. Now, in that context, reducing the friction between us and what will remain our largest trading partner by a country mile, that should be helpful. Uh, And this may even help a little bit with our aim to do a bit more with the US as it goes. This deal lines us up a bit better to get preferred status for some aspects covered in that massive US bill we discussed, the the Inflation Reduction Act. We talked a little bit about that last week, this kind of fascinating return to, you know, US muscular industrial policy. Yes. So yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, it's it's positive, isn't it? It's just not yet a game changer, but it's potentially the direction of travel could be. Okay. So I guess the direction of travel as we head towards the 2025 negotiations, a bit less trade friction with Europe, there will be those worrying about the demographic deficit again, the role of the European court and so on. What's your view there? Yes, that is right, Sarah. And uh, like I said, Brexit wasn't all about economics, of course. That's a really important consideration. I I would nonetheless point out that all trade deals are in effect an exchange of sovereignty. Uh, It's just who you decide to do it with. Trade deals require you to bring your production, your standards into line with that other country to whatever degree that trade deal enshrines. So as with all deals, what you can offer, the scale of the market, the juicy stuff, uh, will determine your power to actually set those terms. So you know, yes, a valid concern, but just bear that in mind. It'd be interesting to watch the direction of travel, particularly in the context of what's been going on in Scottish politics uh, over the last couple of weeks. One thing that was interesting or be interested in is your thoughts, Will, on the benefits of rejoining and affect the European scientific community. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there is a lot going on at the moment. There are some speculating with regards to that Scottish polit- political development, whether that changes the calculus on UK breakup risk to a certain extent. I mean, there's all sorts of things to factor in. I'm not quite sure, to be honest, from my own perspective, but certainly things are happening. On the scientific thing, I think this is really important. I mean, for me, this is actually massive, uh, albeit not an immediate effect. That rejoining of, I think it's called Horizon Europe. Uh, it's that's yeah, the, Horizon. Yeah. Horizon Europe. And it was, it was Horizon 2020, and it sort of migrated into. And this is the European research and development effort, basically, part of it. Um, And this is vital, I think, as science and innovation requires scale from many respects, particularly on the diffusion and commercialization side of things. This acts as a giant 
you know, incentive in itself. However, there's also a sort of competitive element, I think, and scientists speak of this, sort of continent-wide competition drives up standards and aspirations. And there is a science sense at the moment, which could easily be proved wrong, as with all things, uh, that the world is kind of potentially breaking up into these three giant trading blocks. There are, of course, global elements, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm very reluctant to join the deglobalization throng. I, I, I think a lot of it's just pure rubbish, to be honest. But However, you are seeing China, the US and Europe in their admittedly very different ways pursue variants of that muscular industrial policy I just mentioned, kind of huge targeted state support and subsidy, even picking winners. So far beyond that's far beyond what we've seen in much of the kind of neoliberal era. And that suggests that nestling into the European bloc rather than trying to buccaneer alone might be a higher probability play. That's just my personal views i guess okay but it is interesting i think the scientific bit is really is i mean that's caused some ripples in the scientific has indeed isn't it and it's actually well that sounds encouraging it also seems that the uk economy is doing a little bit better than we feared i remember you and the team suggesting this earlier so i'm not wishing to go back to one of your crystal ball moments where you might have been right but we might have one here (laughs) the accidents Um, so just to kind of help you you know, make another prediction. You said that the Chancellor might have a bit more wiggle room as we came to the next budget. Is that the case? Are you I'm seeing sure that? I was just copying Olivia and parading it as my own view, but oh, probably please, I don't please know, go ahead. words into your mouth. But yes, I mean, the UK has enjoyed some very welcome tailwinds this year, a bit like much of the rest of the world economy in a way. So winter has been a lot warmer than feared, one of the warmest winters on record in terms of average temperatures. That has taken a lot of the sting out of gas prices. And like you say, given the Chancellor a little bit more operating space, I think the November uh, OBR forecasts natural gas forwards have roughly halved for this year and next. Uh, you know, since then, this is not an unalloyed, easy for me to say, positive for the tax take. You lose some of your windfall from energy companies, but the effect on poten- potential government outlays is bigger. I think. Another factor is China's dramatic reopening, literally from zero to herd immunity without apparently any of the kind of public health catastrophes that we, among many, feared. The US has less direct exposure here, but Europe and UK do feel a bit more of the economic warmth. The UK on a sort of slightly, I don't know if it's a positive, negative or positive note, but I mean, this is just a fact of life in the UK. It does present a very different kind of interest rate sensitivity to Europe and the US, though, namely that higher interest rates are going to be realized in mortgage payments much, much quicker than you see in those economies because of the very different nature of borrowing here. That should also sort of sap household cash flows a little more in coming quarters than you might see elsewhere and also puts a different type of pressure on the Bank of England and policymakers more generally, as we saw last year with the May budget blowout. So things are different here, but there are some positives, which is good. So Olivia, any of your views? Yeah, I think positive in principle, and if only it was this straightforward as sort of having a greater fiscal headroom translating into sort of cash splurges or rabbits out of hats for the budget. But look, I think, you know, Will, you're correct that obviously there has been a fall in wholesale energy prices. I think government are aware of that and the optics it creates. And they know that there's a subsequent improvement in the economic outlook, which is which is positive. But look, I still think they want to maintain that economic restraint for now. I think they'll, you know, Sunak and Hunt, the Chancellor, will likely argue that this year is still the year for restraint. And only next year, when sort of the heavy lifting has been done, can the public finances sort of be revised to hopefully reflect that slightly better economic outlook. And of course, there's a strategic point there, isn't there, that next year will be even slightly closer to this pending general election. So, you know, do you want to use some of the fiscal headroom you might have closer to that? Well, yes, 
I think it's fair to say. Okay, I was actually going to ask you about your predictions for next week's budget. You've given us a sense, but anything else to add? Yeah, I think every year you get me on to ask about the budget, yeah, and I course, can't. I, and I, I, we should do an exercise, exercise well. to see how now. right my uh, speculation <laughs> is. Look, I think you know, firstly, really positive momentum going into this budget compared to previous years, and obviously the sort of kamikaze budget that will reference last autumn. I think in terms of what might be in that. We're probably fair to say that we're expecting sort of headline reforms around economic inactivity. So measures maybe to encourage over 50s or or that cohort back into the workforce. Maybe something on improving childcare provision, which I think would go down extremely well. I think one of the giveaways that's probably baked in is around the extension of fuel duty cut. I think that's going to cost the government something like 5.7 billion. So not insignificant. And we might also see, not that consumers will care as much, some increased spending for the Ministry of Defence. There might also be a continuation of the energy price guarantee. I think that was due to end or expire this April. But, you know, going back to that fiscal headroom that I just described, it looks like government might be able to be a little bit more generous there. That being said, there's sort of huge ongoing pressure, I think, on the Chancellor to sort of stimulate the UK economy, particularly in view of that surplus and implement some sort of tax cuts to kickstart growth. I'm not optimistic that we'll see any tax cuts in this particular budget, if I'm honest. And then you've also obviously got the Labour Party pushing really strongly for additional measures to help with the cost of living, you know, perhaps an extension in the windfall tax or a resolution sort of public sector pay dispute. So there's lots and lots of scrutiny and pressure on this budget. And I think, you know, I probably say this every time, but I think it'll be hard for the government to sort of strike the right balance between economic prudence on the one hand while also demonstrating a desire for growth and responding to sort of consumer pressures on the other. Excellent. Well, we look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks to unpack that. Maybe one final question, something that was overshadowed in the news a bit this week with the Northern Ireland Protocol was a big speech from opposition leader Sakir Starmer on their key pledges. I'm sure you listen to it. Any key takeaways yeah. for us? I have to listen to it, don't I? I sort of uh, follow it all closely. Five pledges, I think, recall from Keir Starmer, a leader of the Labour Party, or five missions, I should say. I think everything comes in five now. Rishi Sunak. It used to be three, but now Rishi it's five. Rishi Sunak did five. <laughs> Mao had a five-year economic plan, but I won't go into that or make that comparison, obviously. But look, back to Starmer. Wasn't Theresa May's four? I thought she was four. Yeah, anyway, sorry. That's inflation for you. It's all <laughs> it's all growing. Um, but look, you know, Starmer set out these five national missions, which I think will form the backbone of their manifesto for the next general election and supposedly facilitate a sort of new mindset to governance. You know, Starmer was very critical of this short-termism. He thinks that's dominated the Conservative administration over the last 13 years. And these missions are pretty bold, pretty punchy, you know, deliver the highest growth of any G7 nation, build an NHS fit for purpose, make Britain's streets safe, break down the barriers to opportunities at every stage and make Britain a clean energy superpower. Now, those all seem pretty high level at the moment. And I think, you know, the shadow ministers will need to come out and flesh out the details of how Labour, you know, look to practically achieve those missions. And I think because of that slight high level as we've seen, the reaction's been a little bit muted so far. I mean, also overshadowed, obviously, by the yeah. Northern Ireland Protocol yeah, yeah, in yeah. the way that is politics. Timing is everything. But I think, you know, Labour are going to be under particular pressure now to sort of quite quickly communicate how they plan to achieve this vision. And also, I think, you know, there's a bit of electorate apathy, isn't there, towards sort of future visions that feel yeah, quite it's... blue sky thinking when we're all sort of thinking about day-to-day issues on our doorstep. So, you know, that that's a key tension there. That being said, you know, Labour's poll lead, I think, 22 points at the latest, but it's been as high as 27 
points in recent weeks, you know, suggests that they're doing something right. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Don't mess up, isn't it? I think. And but I mean, I think the, the, there is something interesting you were saying just with regards to mission focused government. And mm. that, that's sort of, you know, it's something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast with regards to it's a return to the kind of some of the perceived successes of the 1950s. Mm. There's definitely the strand of academia that seems to support this that's been pondering on how to kind of recreate the successful link between state subsidy or state activity, university research, you know, the private sector and companies. Yeah. I think is it UCL, I think they've got an Institute for Innovation and public purpose that's just one of the sort of sort of ideas but and also people always talked about the mission to get to the moon as this good idea of what you do is you're trying to kind of unite or go beyond the kind of departmental scraps mm. the short-termism idea where you're kind of constantly fighting for resources and actually try and get north stars that everyone can, can try and have aimed to and get beyond these little scraps it's a nice idea but also it's, it's got more of a history than that i mean Theresa may had a go at it with her mm. industrial policy it was a huge i mean one of the other sort of big success stories in terms of post-war development i mean korea and taiwan the economic miracles of the post-war period industrial policy or focused mission statements about where you're going to dominate and what areas you're going to do. It's a key idea. But I think, you know, Olivia mentioned this, but I think there's, there's some criticism here that, you know, you need, are these really missions? They're quite blue sky. You know, you need a bit more specificity. Easy for me to say again. Mm. But it's interesting. It is. It, yeah. it, there does seem to be a bit of a change in and the you, way that government's organised. And you want something to look back to the next <clears throat> election and you can point back to your reckon. I think it was in the 90s under Labour, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, there was another set of missions and one of them sort of reducing class sizes and that was really specific maybe yes. too specific yes, yes. but you know look they could point back and say they achieved it potentially yes. so yeah, exactly right uh it's a really fine balance i think well i think Theresa may did one where it was kind of like add five years to your life expectancy or something like that wasn't there there was something very specific like that which i think is you know like yeah you need a degree of specificity we've got to stop saying this word uh, you know what I mean but yeah it, but it, the, the problem is like you say is how do you get to a stage where it's kind of specific but credible and it doesn't you know you're not hoisted by your own petard later on excellent well, thank you will maybe just finally we've talked a lot about the uk today as always is there anything outside of the uk you want to draw our attention to well i mean look i mean i and, and what's so busy for the UK, but it, it is really busy outside of the UK at the moment. And it is for investors, as we know, you know, and this podcast is designed for investors and how to help them. The UK is almost irrelevant in many ways to sort of what drives your returns. And I think, you know, there's two really important things. There's lots of really important data coming in. So the ISM surveys have come in. I think the overall, if I was to do a summary of what's going on, there was this market narrative, this capital markets narr narrative that kind of prospered at the beginning of this year and maybe the end of 2022, that the peak of inflation in the US, Europe and elsewhere was finally kind of plausibly in sight. That meant that many investors could also see the summit for interest rates and therefore hostile central bankers. There was a dash for all the comfort of all the potential trades and stock ideas that could be linked to that theme. However, and here's the problem. Incoming data seem to be helping to undermine conviction here a bit. So data revisions and other factors have muddied that story around the peak inflation story. There is a downtrend in inflationary pressure visible still with a bit of a squint, but that trend is not 
will not be providing much solace to central bankers. It's too shallow, really. Um, they are continuing to talk and act with the idea that every day inflation sticks around above their targets is an extra day for inflation to prey on our collective conscious and shape our expectations. And that's the dangerous bit, the second round effects. That means more interest rate hikes ahead in the US in particular. Um, but you had a, a couple of nasty inflation surprises in Europe too, suggesting that central bankers here could be raising rates well into the second half of the year. So overall, you would say that the US economy in particular is still running uncomfortably hot, as they say, and central bankers will need to do more to cool it. There are actually mixed views on the team on what that means. My hunch, and it should be no more than this, it's one input, is that it probably increases the risk of an accident in the road ahead, a recession or more severe downturn. In the UK, US and Europe, there are already a load of interest rates that have been enacted, but not necessarily fully absorbed into things like borrowing costs and so on, as we discussed earlier. So we are still a little cautious of developed world stocks, for instance, something that has added a little bit of value to our funds and portfolios in the last couple of weeks. But we are at another fascinating juncture in the world economy and its political environment, as Olivia so aptly described. So yeah, it's stay tuned, I guess. I think the only certainty is we're going to be talking about this for a lot longer. Mm. Yes. So True. with that, I would say thank you, Will. Thank you, Olivia, for joining us again today. Uh, interesting discussion. I look forward to talking with you again soon. And uh, for our listeners joining you next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.